My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I am joined by Yerk P, a Twitter poster, a very original Twitter poster, um, one of my favorite follows, and a person with a very particular sensitivity for what's going on and a very particular way of um, expressing himself. Um, I feel like if, if I had to pick out his tweets from like a big pile of anonymized uh, anonymized tweets, I would definitely do a really good job because um, it's just that, I don't know, they're very evocative. He's very, you know, I don't want to use the word sensitive, but he's got like his feelers are out for a lot of like very subtle phenomena that are happening. And I feel it's really cool. And I've, I've you know, I've prolonged this intro enough. So, so welcome. Thanks very uh, much. Um, I'm, I'm always happy to be described as sensitive. That's, uh, that's, oh, that's good. That's good. Because in, in the nicest sense yeah. of the word, because you know, I'm in these kind of manosphere <laughs> circles where you know you shouldn't describe oh, someone yeah, as sensitive, yeah. uh, lest you be accused of calling him uh, a sin yeah, or an yeah. incel. We won't, we'll <laughs> um, no, no. <laughs> and actually, I mean, one of the things I wanted to, to talk to you about, um, and that people have been asking me to talk to you about, uh, is about this mm-hmm. incel phenomenon. I know you've you've written, you've gotten a, quite a few, you know, circular spats about, oh, about yeah. what an incel is, um, <laughs> and I've I've also commented on the incel phenomenon, but it's still it's still really interesting um, to to see it from from you know multiple perspectives as you have because you know people just believe that you know incels are people who are involuntarily celibate they live in their mother's basement yeah. they play games they're they're off the grid <coughs> and they're also kind of this this i don't know this category that we we shall not speak about in in positive terms so i don't know what's what's your what's your vibe about incels are they a modern scapegoat or yeah it's very interesting purpose? i've been thinking about the kind of incel phenomenon for a while and it, it seems to me that it's kind of like a it's part of a sort of internet folklore um and it's like a more recent example of of internet folklore and th- i think there have been others i mean the guy in his basement archetype is like very old um and probably goes back a kind of long time uh, internet wise um but what's always really struck me about it is how um the sort of uh i suppose i'm going to generalize here but like the media people or you know the sort of blue check industrial complex um have always seemed to sort of take incels at face value you know rather than seeing them as this kind of folkloric construction um that obviously overlaps with reality in various ways obviously there are there are people who kind of identify with that label to different degree, uh, different degrees, and there are kind of loose communities, you know, uh, or have been at different times of people who kind of conceive of themselves in this way. So, uh, like a lot of online identities, there's a degree of self fulfilling prophecy to it. But 
it's interesting to me that no one um, seems to want to put them into a kind of social context. You know, uh, no one seems to want to examine them as the product of the culture they've grown up in. I mean, the people who actually do have these kinds of problems and who are drawn to this kind of identification. Um, there's this like idea that they've just like sprung up out of nowhere. Um, and people are very happy to sort of accept this like implicitly meritocratic frame um, that they're basically just romantic failures who um, resent women <laughs> and kind of resent society. And that seems like such a cartoonish, superficial, you know, you're really like taking them at face value and at their word, really, and assuming that this kind of um, self-mythologization that they're engaged in is, you know, <laughs> completely the whole story of what's been going on. And actually, you know, it, it's just obvious that masculinity is kind of in crisis and that, um there's just tremendous false consciousness about um, how relationships between men and women work, I think. Um, I mean, I've experienced that in, in my own life and almost every other guy I know who's around my age has experienced that. And we've all navigated it in different ways, you know, and you kind of gradually um, sort of piece together the, <laughs> the truth of things. Um, and so you have to look in sort of uh, forbidden territories at these kind of like cargo cult attempts at reconstructing uh, sort of essential truths about relationships um, that because they've been denied by the broader culture, they've resurfaced in a kind of slightly um, like hostile and resentful form, you know. I mean, that's how I see a lot of like mm. uh, red pill stuff, you know. Uh, I'm not wild about the kind of evo-psych dimension to it because it seems very, like, uh, very cold. Um, but there's obviously something there that is yeah. that resonates with people and resonates with people's experiences and that they're not finding acknowledgement. Yeah, I feel so. like... Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like evo-psych is probably the language that, that people can still communicate about it in. Um, because it kind of has this veneer of science when essentially, yeah, yeah, evo psych is you know the lying eyes school yeah. of dating, um, you know what we all knew until yesterday, and then now we just have this this cool explanation like oh you know when we when we were in caves we used to do the same yeah. thing oh really okay well then <laughs> that makes sense um, it's and it's also I've seen this this label insult thrown around a lot as kind of the one of the last legitimate forms of, of insults mm. and slurs. It's it's coming up more and more. I see like, you know, from from like especially from woke women, um, if they want to shut up someone in an, in an internet yeah. feed, they just say, oh, Yeah, yeah. You insult. And I don't know, it's it's it feels like it, it's just not <laughs> I mean, one, it's not an argument, so I don't want to sound like <laughs> Stefan Molyneux. <laughs> but it's also, um, I don't know, it's it's really childish. Like, you're just kind of calling someone, you know, un unlucky in love or something. Yeah, I mean, which also but, betrays yeah, the kind of anxiety of the worldview that, that they subscribe to. Um, and I, I think that's also a big part of it, really, which is that... Um, 
the culture we all inhabit now is so like acquisitive and and kind of competitive in a way that it overtly uh, denies being. Um, so we're in this like this kind of hedonist culture where there's really there's really nothing to fight for or nothing to do, nothing constructive really to do. There's just sort of these passing moments of pleasure, and so everybody has to try and get as many, uh, get as much like um, just pure libidinal uh, like pleasure out of life as they can before they die. There's nothing transcendent, and it inspires this kind of like terrible. Um, sort of envy and this anxiety that other people may be enjoying themselves more than you and maybe having like better experiences than you, um, or, you know, we'll be having more sex than you, which is obviously that's like an eternal human anxiety as well, but it's, it's very acute, um, at the moment because it's so sort of inflected with this, um, this kind of desperate acquisitiveness. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting to me how, you know, because because we're this global market, and, and, you know, every, every facet of our lives is has is reflected in the market in some way, or at least yeah. reflected back at us in, in some refined way to, you know, extract value or, you know, give us value or create create desires in us. Um, I, I remember you, you commented on on OnlyFans and kind of like this, this new uh, category of sex worker. Um, and I know OnlyFans, you know, is not a big as big of a phenomenon as, as you know, at least my corner of Twitter tries to make it. But I feel like it's very symptomatic of, of this highly refined, like parasocial, um, you know, we we sell you your normality mm. back to you uh, in like these weird fragments of, like you said, you know, libidinal um, yeah. impulse and. Um, and it's always, I don't know, it's its never really total humanity that you get back. It's just like some some weird, uh, super normal version of a subset of stimuli that you would get from, you know, being yeah, married or yeah. having, having a, a relationship with a human being. Um, and I thought that was really insightful. And I remember, I think there was a woman who was either a spokesperson for sex workers or a sex worker herself, but she was oh, like, yeah, she wasn't yeah. having it. Didn't, <laughs> didn't want to hear about it. Um, yeah, that's happened a few times, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing about, like, I mean, OnlyFans, it strikes me that even on a sort of, like, you know, like, looking at it from the point of view of this, like, Rabelaisian kind of, like, uh, you know, Thelema attitude of, like, oh, you know, let's just enjoy ourselves and have a good time, it seems strikingly kind of antiseptic and sterile and sort of... Um, like de-eroticized you know it seems kind of like a you know the the fact that you're like looking at women seems almost like purely vestigial uh at this point it's mm -hmm. like they're they're kind of almost incidental to the whole the whole process of what's going on you know it's so kind of um mechanized um i don't know i mean you know it may not be it may yeah all of us on Twitter, it may kind of, because it, it tends to show up in the timeline um, or just something that we're more ambi ambiently aware of because it's sort of sharing this weird online space we're all in. So it might be that we give, <laughs> um, it, it sort of haunts us more than it should do. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I um, think. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, 
Yeah, there, there's some people who are extremely popular on Twitter who are involved with all yeah. that. Yeah, so it's kind of a, a flashpoint for for these anxieties to do with every, everybody kind of being sort of atomized and, you know, the whole bug world um, thing, because it's sort of, it's one of the most sort of noticeable and clear examples of that, that thing kind of appearing in the present. Um, and so I think it has a kind of, uh, there's a sort of fear that it's like the herald of, you know, a new way of being entirely or, or one herald of that new way of being that's kind of um, sort of more and more appearing in our own world. Yeah. And I feel like this, uh, this is something that a, a, a good corner of, of, you know, of thinking people applaud or at least welcome or see as the next yeah. step, you know, kind of the, the tra- transhumanist, you know, um, extension. Like I've, I've even heard, you know, economists like Tyler Cowen say that this is this is the inevitable future. We're going to have a, a cast of yeah. know, high, you know, maybe the sub sub one percent who's going to be uh, kind of almost anarcho primitivist, and the rest are going to just be hooked up to sensors and drooling in their in their pods. Um, and to me, that's yeah. really terrible. <laughs> and I, you know, the inevitability of it is. I'm not into it. No, no. Narco-primitivism for yeah. all, I say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, no, it's very, like, it's very sinister, actually, that, I mean, um, you know, it just seems very obvious to me, like, social media was accompanied by a lot of, like, um, utopian kind of messaging, you know, um, especially, like, early on, and now it's, like, 10 years later, and you know, I don't know if if this is a kind of distortion. It probably is, but the online landscape is so sort of like permeated by trauma and anxiety and sort of disassociation and dread. You know, um, and it just seems to be the case. People are kind of lonelier. People have less hope in the future. I mean, there are a lot of reasons for that, um, but it just seems clear at this point that the whole, the whole thing has been a terrible mistake, you know, but every time a new sort of technological development is announced in the news, it seems to be in this, like, um, this tone of inevitability, you know, like this is coming, um, Mm -hmm. get used to it, you know? And yeah. Yeah. And even, even in media, if you, if you look at what, you know, what, what would have been the most popular forms of, of I don't know, uh, sci-fi recently. It's a lot of like crazy dystopian stuff like Black Mirror. Oh, what a, what a, you know, magical creation. Or mm. even, even the Matrix or things like that. It's like, oh, okay, so which one of these pod futures is going to be ours? And um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's quite weird how people just take it for granted. Yeah. And I feel like that kind of plays into the... Yeah, people are very disempowered about about their lives in general. Like the idea that anyone could opt out of this um, doesn't really, yeah, it doesn't really ring yeah. true. Yeah, I mean, I people. think that's the sort of the trad ideal, which um, kind of became very popular on here for a while. And, and you know, again, that's something that like answers a, a sort of deep need I think people have to um, imagine uh, some kind of exit from this um this future that's kind of been decided for us you know and it's been decided for us by 
this kind of mysterious, like, you know, it, it's just, I mean, you think about the way people encounter um, news now, you know, it's just in this like endless flow of, of data and information. Uh, and it's, unless you kind of dedicate a substantial effort to researching it very carefully, it just appears as like waves within, you know, one, one big thing. Um, and it's hard to attribute it to anything. You know, it seems to, these things seem to just arrive on our screens kind of out of a, a it's just a huge sort of technological unconscious, <laughs> you know, um, so there's not a lot to yeah. sort of do about them. Um, yeah, and there's there's no centralized authority that you know creates a script of, of how this stuff yeah, is going yeah. to be. You know w- what comes down the pipe. It's it's all very emergent from yeah from almost this kind of religious you know very ancestral thing that's brewing underneath the the conscious. Uh, of everyone and then everyone kind of participates in creating this this egregore that you know oh, yeah. everyone else on the other side is shocked at like how how did this come to be but you know there's i don't think there's like a cabal of people um mm. you know thinking about you know how to how to craft the message and the message crafted so crafts itself yeah i mean like kind of um the topic of conspiracy theory is a sort of good example of this because there'll be like uh you know, you can find like USA Today articles from like 2017. Uh, like, there's one that's called something like, you know, you, <laughs> you will be chipped, you know, or, um, you know, like chip microchip implants are coming. Um, and it's, it's in the context of like, um, you know, like tech companies, uh, like um, keeping tabs on their employees. Um, but, you know, obviously now um, that's a kind of conspiracy theorist um, classified anxiety of like, oh, the vaccines will have microchips in them. Um, but there was one time when this was being like, you know, the, the, just the concept of microchip implants was kind of mainstream enough um, to appear in this this like article in the, you know, in USA Today that wasn't exactly friendly about them <laughs> you know it's kind of like this hostile tone of like you know it's, it's coming whether or not you like it um but now that it's become sort of inconvenient um during the sort of covid era the idea of like microchip implants is kind of taboo suddenly and it's sort of um it's kind of been tagged as like misinformation you know so something that was once plausible um, has become unspeakable and, you know, no one really has any power or or control or access to who decides these things. There is just a sort of, um, consent manufacturing process that you can observe in real time, but you're always on the outside of it. And if you object to it, then you're, you know, you're, you run the risk of becoming a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, and you know what's what's going on right now is, is even more interesting. I, I don't know if you've uh, had a chance to read that Time article or if you. I was just it reading it, and, uh, <laughs> just just before this. Yeah. Yeah, so it's very interesting <coughs> because at the moment, essentially, you have, um, you know, like uh, I think it was Michael Anton's celebration parallax. It's kind of that thing where you have to 
um, not only is this not going on, but when you find out that it is going on, it's the yeah. best thing that ever happened. Um, you know, it's, it's, and it really depends. Like at the same time, you know, people are talking in neutral terms about this on the right and they're getting stickers like, oh, this is a disputed situation, but they're essentially, you know, quoting almost verbatim yeah. from the article, um, which it's essentially an article gloating that uh, a, a cabal of, you know, a real cabal, political, you know, a, a real cabal. It <laughs> yeah. actually says cabal in the in the article. Um, and it's all just like chest beating about how they how they orchestrated and changed laws and, and you know, d- directed to the the. the the flow yeah. of information to to guarantee the the Biden victory. Um, <laughs> I mean, from anyone uh, anyone from this position, I mean, from, from my position, I'm, I'm more on the right, obviously. Um, it's 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 quite a shocker, but I'm curious how someone within you know someone who's who's a lefty would would read that article and how they they would interpret it. Probably not the way I have. I mean, it's, yeah, it's you know they just say, ah, oh, nice. Good for them. Yeah, well, there's this kind of irony that, you know, the sort of pretext for why all of this happened in the first place is this belief that Trump would dispute the election based on the fact that he thought forces were conspiring against him. And so, again, it's a kind of mm-hmm. self-fulfilling pro- prophecy. That they, were, they were like, oh, well, yeah, in that case, we should all conspire against him to ensure, you know, that democracy will be free from... Uh, the threat of Trump believing that he's being conspired against. Yeah. <laughs> Fortified. I love, I love yeah. the, the new word um, for it. I mean, I think there's a kind of thing where, where it's like uh, Alex Jones talking about like the frogs being turned gay um, by chemicals in the water supply, which is, you know, it just mm-hmm. um, is true. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's like, if, it, if Alex Jones is talking about it, then by definition, it can't be true because he's such a sort of extreme persona, you know? Um, a lot of this is just to do with the kind of persona that people have online, you know? And, like, there's an NPR persona, you know, there's, like, a liberal persona, and they have, like, these aestheticized qualities associated with them of being rational or reasonable or caring about facts but, you know, the, their actual relationship to all of those things is kind of um, no better or worse than anybody's, really. And they're just as prone to kind of hysteria and emotionalism as anybody. Um, but it, it's sort of, again, it's a kind of, it's a kind of internet folklore. You know, it, it might not be recognized as such to the extent that incels um, obviously are. But... Um, I guess this, you know this is another thing. It's like identity online. That's a slightly different area, but it's it's related. Um, but I think they feel that it's if it's real, then by definition it can't be a conspiracy theory. And if it's not a conspiracy theory, then it can't be bad because conspiracy theories are always bad, and they're always outlandish. Um, and I th- I'm sure that lots of people you know, participating in this enormous collective effort that's described in that Time article wouldn't conceive of themselves as conspiring. You know, I th- I'm sure that when they describe it in the article as a conspiracy, it's a kind of, um, a lot of people read that in a sort of uh, a sort of self-deprecating or ironic way. 
in regards to themselves, you know. Yeah. Um, and kind of miss that it's actually just true. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the, the, the whole world is, is one big Russell conjugation now where, you know, <laughs> I'm firm, you're obstinate, and it's just you can't really break out of that um, kind of in-group, out-group. Mm perspective and you can even see this with with covid you know it, it took a little while until the side stabilized on covid because i feel like you know the the right especially the online right was really early yeah. on covid they were i think early on masks they were you know and and that was kind of the, the the online right aesthetic like okay there's this thing happening china is bad um until they until they stabilize on the message you know people weren't they didn't make it a, a religious observance to wear your six, six masks <laughs> or whatever the, the, the trend is now. Um, but now it's it's solidified. It's clear, you know, who the enemy mm. is, you know, what they do, what they don't do, who we are. And it's it's quite interesting to see that, you know, to see that happen in real time and to see the message just like morph into and, and kind of yeah, crystallize. Yeah. And the sort of like eyes. deference towards the, the figure of the expert. I wish is another example of like folklore, really, and the way it's kind of used now. Um, you know, like this idea of expertise that's like really outside of any other kind of social context and is kind of immune to any kind of bias or like political agenda, you know, and it is always just this sort of absolute that can be turned to at any time, even though it's you know, contents within itself are always sort of changing and the processes by which it's arrived at are also, you know, opaque to the average person, which is not, you know, that's not a, a scientific attitude. Um, it's a kind of um, quasi-religious attitude. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's another thing I wanted to ask you about uh, about yeah. facts, which is a big word on the internet, especially on the on the left, um, the idea that okay, we have the facts, we are the party of science, with yeah. I guess, um, and there's there are people who have the facts and people who don't have the facts, which um, I feel like is completely contrary to the to the nature of you know what what a yeah. fact is. Um, it's it's, you know, it's it's very it's quite subjective sometimes. Uh, and I remember, I think there was this this highly, you know, um, talked about thing by by Kellyanne Conway, where she said we have alternative facts, and I thought that was that was probably one of the, the truer things said during the the, the Trump presidency. <coughs> it's true. I mean, um, just having a little bit of a different perspective essentially gives you yeah, a different set yeah. of facts because you know you're just just your perception, you know, shifting. You you observe different things. You put different things together in different ways. Um, I, I wonder what what your um, kind of what your feeling is about about this. Um, I feel like they're they're also ratcheting up the discourse. On yeah, well, now. It, you know, we it's, have it's useful we, because it's sort yeah. of again the expertise thing is part of a kind of like there's this established binary between expertise and then misinformation, and misinformation has become the new sort of pretext for online censorship. Um, so they're pushing it very hard right now. Uh, but you can kind of also trace it back to um, the fact that, you know, the, the liberal political vision is a really like a sort of technocratic managerial one um, at the moment. And it's and it's also kind of um, it's sort of proceduralist. You know, it's like the, this is the sort of accepted way of doing things. We can just stick to this 
this is the sort of evidence, this is the data we've collected that supports why this is the best policy to use or, you know, and it, it kind of evades the question of ideology altogether, uh, evades the question of values. Um, and you can see that in something like an issue like abortion, you know, where the, the sort of like um, pro-choice rhetoric is often, uh, you know, it's like using this idea that like, oh, you know, a fetus is or isn't um, a person at such and such a, you know, a time. And that's a factual thing, you know, <laughs> rather than a kind of a, a question that refers back to all kinds of, um, you know, ethical and sort of spiritual moral implications, you know, that, that people are very serious about and for good reason. Um, so it's sort of convenient to have this political worldview that's quite absent of values altogether almost. Um, and it's just, well, does this thing directly hurt anybody? No, then it's fine. Um, and everything else is just a sort of um, an organizational question, you know, um, so I think that, you know, people have a, a very deep investment in this, like this idea of politics that doesn't demand anything of them, that doesn't make them, um, doesn't ask them to seriously, uh, evaluate themselves in any way, morally, um, it's just this kind of, uh, You know, it's something that can be left to the experts in a way, so the average person uh, doesn't doesn't have to worry about it. It's all being taken care of. Um. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is definitely something that you see in in you know all areas of life. Um, there's another kind of conversation about um, a post about sex being just like like eating yeah. and it's just like a, a yeah physical compulsion and whatever mystifications we want to add to it that's on you because it's essentially just yeah, like yeah. i don't know like burping and yeah you, you should you should leave emotionality any, out of it any like uh, significance that you add to sex is just your kind of free prerog- prerogative in the um in the kind of marketplace you know and it, it, it's interesting what, yeah, ah, sorry, I, what are you going to say? No, I'm just, I'm just going to say that, uh, you know, I feel like this is the, the, the biggest crime that this perspective has is that it's, it's focused on the individual. It's like, oh, I, I am the one having sex. I, it's, it's very yeah. instrumental. I'm, I use the other person. Um, my, my perspective is the only one that matters. Uh, when, when you essentially, you never know how, where you stand yeah, with the other yeah. person, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're spiritually invested in sex and you're just essentially burping <laughs> on them because that's your, you know, physical <laughs> impulse. But it's, you know, that, that's, that to me is, is quite, I don't mm. know, quite morally repugnant to just, you know, dispense with any morality in sex because, you know, that's, yeah. That's and again, <laughs> to, to reduce the moral dimension of it down to the question of consent, which I think has caused a great deal of problems for people. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's interesting to, to consider what happened with sex, um, with the sort of history of like the sexual revolution in the sixties and, um, and the, the ideas of sort of sexual liberation, I think um, 
there was a sense maybe back then of sort of um, social institutions uh, having become kind of like shells that were containing this um, energy that wanted to escape, you know. And so there are all these sort of social movements um, that were, you know, had this ideology of expanding people's personal freedom and introducing them to pleasure and all, all, all of this kind of thing, which obviously there are, you know, you can critique that from a, a number of angles, but it also obviously happened. Um, and I don't doubt that it was a sort of true experience for some people, but it seems that what's happened um, further down the line now is that energy has kind of exhausted itself. Um, and those sort of, you know, um, what those institutions that are once sort of containing shells are really just like husks now, you know, um, but all of that sort of vital energy has kind of completely dissipated. Um, and any energy that's left is just like soaked up by things like OnlyFans and by like the, the availability of, of porn online, you know, and no one is really sleeping with anybody anymore. Um, it, you know, yeah. it, it's also sort of like, it's miserable really, but, um, it, it yeah, it, it feels to me like it, it follows the, the pattern of, um, of a classical addiction. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I haven't been addicted to many things, but I, I was addicted to, to cigarettes for a, a short time quite, quite intensely. And it was very interesting to observe it going from, oh, this is, you know, a pleasurable experience to, I am a junkie. I will wake up one hour earlier just so I can have yeah. my five cigarettes in the morning. And it was just kind of just being chained to ratcheting up the habit. Um, and it just, you know, you kind of just need more and more and more stimulus to get to a place where you're miserable um, just because you'd be much more yeah. miserable if you didn't have it. So I, I see this pattern playing out in so many things from even from, you know, from eating from, you know, all, all sorts of super normal stimuli that we're bombarded with. Uh, from every industry, you know, and, and porn is like the, the quintessential one, like, you know, how many people have erectile yeah. dysfunction or all sorts of problems with, with sexuality because of porn? Um, it's it's not just, you know, it's it's not a neutral good. It's not like, oh, you know, they're, they're not having sex, so they're just going to watch some porn. You know, it's it's it really is. A, I mean, I'm going to say really crotchety, but it's a corrupting influence. <laughs> so, yeah, I, don't I mean, know. if you try so, and, you know, be hedonistic and you just indulge all of your impulses you know you quickly realize um well i mean i guess a lot of people don't <laughs> well hopefully you do you know is that you realize it kind of really doesn't lead anywhere it, it kind of leads inwards uh, just further and further inwards into kind of nothing and you're not actually releasing anything into the world or creating anything new um is it really is just this sort of like uh, like cascading exhaustion, <laughs> you know, that just gets worse and worse. Uh, I think that's really, that might be the kind of fundamental structure of bad things in general, is they kind of, it's like a, a sort of nothingness eating itself into existence. That probably sounds a bit dramatic, but I really do think that's oh, probably, I like it. I like you know, the, the structure of most bad <laughs> Things that's an absurd thing to say. This is yeah. Ouroboros of evil. Um, you know, just eating away at a kind of potential. Um, 
and I, yeah, and it, it, it gets you like with with every iteration, it yeah. gets hungrier. That's that's kind of the, the problem. Right. It really ratchets up, and at one yeah, point, you that's can't a very stop. significant aspect of it because um, you're sort of feeding this desire for attention with, with attention, and what happens is the desire gets bigger, and I think people confuse. Um, sort of acting on the impulse of a desire with um, sating it. You know, I think satiety, uh, which is a difficult word to say, is a very, very different thing from the sort of impulsive, um, impulsive acting on desire. You know, maybe the, the better word would be fulfillment. I think, you know, we have all these things like porn and video games and drugs and stuff, and it, it doesn't really fulfill us. You know, no one's fulfilled by it. Um, but I also think that we're in denial of that because these things are very easy. And once you're in the habit of them, they exert a significant power of your life. And because our culture is so focused on individual effort, um, you know, no one wants to admit that they have a, a kind of a problem with these things. Um, and also there's this added pressure that if you admit that you have a problem with something that everybody else seems to be enjoying, you appear to be threatening to invalidate their own use of those things by suggesting that it isn't just free choice, you know, that they've made, you know, without yeah. free of any kind of external or internal pressure. Um, exactly. Yeah, it, it feels to me like a, a lot of these movements that are now quite supported by by woke capital are, are based on this, you know, all these uh, kind of newfangled social justice movements like um, fat acceptance and, and things like that. It feels to me like, okay, we've made society quite dysfunctional through this, you know, through these iterative supernormal stimuli that you find in food, this hyper palatable yeah. shop that we get in every type of food. Uh, and now we're like, okay, we are not going to try to focus uh, on the root cause, which is this, you know, this destructive food that we're producing. We're going to just try to integrate yeah. these, you know, this, these de deformed people into their own social justice niche of coalitions <laughs> and niche. Yeah, and then it's 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 quite it's quite dystopian. It's like okay. We deformed you, and now we're going to pay for parades and, yeah. and you know magazine covers and all this stuff just so to to make you feel good. But also, it doesn't make you feel good. Uh, that's the thing. It's, yeah, it's, it's an empty. It's an and empty you guys believe that you can kind of see that when you. I mean, and this may be just me being judgmental, but I, I believe you can kind of see it in the temperament of you know of a lot of people who argue for things like uh, fat acceptance is, you know, I, I sort of believe that there's a part of them deep down that's very repressed that would like to be sort of um, seriously told no. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's a, another kind of taboo thing um, at the moment is just the idea that like anybody would be told no to the, the desire to satisfy an impulse, you know, immediately to, to, to have immediate gratification from things. Um, I think there's a kind of hunger that people have and don't recognize within themselves because it's so foreign to them to, to <laughs> be told no. Um, and there's a kind of yearning for it. 
I think you could see that with like yeah. Jordan Peterson, who obviously is not a perfect thinker, um, but the neurosis that he inspired amongst again kind of PMC people, like uh, kind of media people, was astonishing. Because when you go and you know listen to him speak or read his book or whatever, you just think this is so benign. How could anybody think that this guy was a kind of fascist? You know, um, and there was this desire to attribute his yeah. success to like angry young men or or whatever. Yeah, it's just guilt by association. They've I've never heard an argument against Peterson that wasn't some form of guilt by association. Like, oh, did you see who he hangs out with? He has a photo of this guy with him. Um, never really talking about his argument, except maybe for a few the of lobster the lobster thing, spicier takes on on women. Iconic. Yeah. The yeah. Lo- yeah, but that, that's that's quite cute, and I don't think it's very informed. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a nice symbol, um, but I think it was his comments about I think women weren't wearing makeup in the workplace. I think that really rubbed a lot yeah. of people the wrong way. Um, yeah, but you know he's 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 a super benign character. Um, you know, I, I really enjoy his work. I feel like he's just been definitely a, a big motivation for me, just just by the fact that he was so ballsy to just go out there and say no. He was, I think that that was the thing that made him famous. He looked these people in the eye, these people that everyone is afraid afraid of, the people slaying the racisms, the bigots, the sexists, and said no. He said no like a stern father, and you know, everyone got chills down their spines. Yeah. Oh my god. Well, what was he, that? You know, he, he, I, I don't know, I'm maybe like lowering my stock by talking about him because he doesn't seem to be that popular anymore. But I mean, I am. Um, yeah. I think there was something kind of. Um, you, you know, I think you read him. You should go on and read. Um, like slightly deeper thinkers, I think, you know, I think he is a good stepping stone, but there was something very compelling about him because like, I think he spoke to a kind of uh, voice inside us all that kind of says like, when you're doing something wrong, it says, uh, you, you know, you know that you're doing something wrong and you should stop. <laughs> and uh, I think it's a part of us that again, you know, it's been repressed for so long and it's something we're encouraged to ignore. Exactly. And it's, it's just, I think it's, you know, like, you know, he talks about archetypes a lot. And I feel like, you know, there, there is a certain archetype that's been missing in, in, in our culture. And that's yeah. essentially kind of the, the ben- yeah. benign father, you know, the, the, the dominant man, the, 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 the masculine energy. And then we've, you know, we've spent so much time with the devouring mother that, you know, that's, that's the only reality we know. And when someone's just, you know, straight talking you into leading a good life, it's it's quite especially if you've never (laughs) you know or only rarely heard that before from other people especially for young men um because you know it's an expression of care and it's like an expression of love and a desire for somebody to succeed and i i really think the people who reacted uh to peterson so badly they're kind of emblematic of a, a culture that like launders its indifference as um tolerance you know i think a lot of people are very a lot of young people especially are very deeply wounded by the indifference of the culture around them and its refusal to try and set any uh limits or boundaries for them and its refusal to give them any judgment and that is so often framed as a kind of positive thing like this idea that judgment is so terrible but you know without um negative judgment you can't have positive judgment either. 
and so no one really knows what to be or you know what what anyone's expectations of them are and everyone is left kind of floundering you know which isn't a fun state to be in yeah absolutely and that's you know it's it, it does feel like um what they're trying to do is just to create a situation where everything is positive yeah. you know any sort of def- defect or uh, but essentially what, what what it does is it you know it's kind of like when they started instituting um, prizes for for all you know for all kids in, in middle school or whatever, uh, everyone knows that it's it's phony. So it just debases the whole the whole hierarchy. Um, it doesn't it doesn't really uh, encourage the people at the bottom because they know it's phony. It discourages the people at the top because they are like, okay, this isn't a competition anymore, um, and it just rips the incentives out from yeah. any sort of you know any sort of morality in in the, in the society. So. Yeah, it's it's quite yeah quite I dystopian. Mean, you know, asking everybody to be their own kind of like founder of their own moral universe is like a tremendous amount of pressure pressure to exert on people, especially like teenagers. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah. I don't think everybody can do that, and I don't think they should be expected to. You know, I think people have a right to, you know, expect. Um, judgments from people and, and a right to expectations about themselves and uh, what they can achieve, you know. Um, yeah, especially if, the, if those judgments, um, you know, they typically bake in some form yeah. of wisdom. Like, you know, people don't want their daughters to be prostitutes, you know, for a, typically a good reason. Now we could look at, you know, what exactly the, this reason is, but it's it's probably going to be good for the individual woman and it's also probably going to be good for the community that surrounds her if she doesn't end up a prostitute so uh, these things you know we could you know we could look at them scientifically we could take our our magnifying glass but there is a reason for this and and depriving people of this you know just by saying oh you know sex work this year 2020 we've decided it's absolutely fine and you should do it yeah any like opposition to it is just the, the result of this like archaic construction that there's no use for anymore um, which is like, you know, it's dismaying, um, because I, I think that's something that happens a lot really is that people have this view of things being socially constructed, that it means that they're basically irrelevant and interchangeable and they can kind of be removed. And that once you've removed all these like pieces of archaic junk away, there'll be some kind of pure, authentic, uh, reality underneath where everybody is their true self and actually i think what you just find is there's nothing that's just a resounding absence um and no no one knows who they are um or what they should do and it it, it's because like you know we've taken this kind of scientific attitude and the, the whole expertise thing and the facts thing ties into this that like um you know, all that matters is the sort of like objective surface of the physical world that we encounter, you know, like where objects are (laughs) and things like that. Um, And then once we've established all of that, we can just throw everything else away. And, you know, I I don't think people realize that all of these, like these um, huge kind of moral systems uh, that exist within 
um, you know, within the like history of our civilization and all, um, within the Western canon and within uh, the great religions, you know, it it was responding to something real. Um, I believe it was responding to something real, you know, and it, it's not about establishing where things are in space. Uh, that's a complete misdirection. It's about um, finding a sort of transcendent source to root your understanding of how things should be in. I just think we, we just don't have that um, culturally. Um, there's a sort of yeah. uh, fear of it, you know. Um, mm. Absolutely. And I, I feel like there's just another layer to this, which is just the, the, the factor of social coordination, you know, where, um, you know, the, this, this new system that we're in kind of treats the individual. And I, I believe the individual is an yeah. important, you know, level of abstraction, but it's not the only level of abstraction. And uh, it, it treats the individual as, okay, this is the place where things happen. Um, but the problem is I'm not, I don't live in a, in a void, you know, there are all sorts of mimetic effects that yeah. happen when I do something or you do something or we're in the same network. Um, and also, you know, the, the purpose of society is to perpetuate itself. You know, whatever people say, and I know there's a big, you know, anti-natalist yeah. movement kind of you know, looming, but it's, um, you know, the, a society should have norms, it should have, you know, stigma, should have all sorts of uh, nudges baked into it, guardrails that w- are there to ensure its, yeah. its propagation, its continuation, at least. Uh, we don't have that anymore. And I feel like that's... that's um, What's that called? The great filter, <laughs> at least, Maybe. at least at the, at the level of a society. You know, that's it. Um, so I think it's it's a super super concerning because you know there, there's nothing to yeah. account for that level. Absolutely nothing. Uh, well, I think what happens is that it's a sort of um, it's a kind of great averaging of perceptions about things. So going back to what I was saying earlier about this kind of like the energy of sexual liberation that's, that's dissipated, you know, what, what, what's happened now is we just have the, the empty vessel <laughs> that contained all of the energy. Um, and now it's like, there could be more energy, but I don't think we really want there to be. I think it's sort of too, too dangerous and, you know, I think actually where you find that energy now is in like, um, not to sort of flatter myself, but like weird, you know, weird Twitter anons uh, and people like that. That's the sort of like real, um, where the kind of countercultural cultural force has like paradoxically arrived at, you know. Um, it's, you know, and it's unrecognized as such by everybody. Um I think it's like, it's now it's like, well, we've, you know, we know what like it looks like when we just let all of this energy escape. I don't think about things purely in terms of en- energy, by the way, but it's just a convenient metaphor for this kind of dimension of what I'm talking about. Um, but now it's time to try and shape it into something positive and constructive for the future. And that requires actual discipline, you know. Uh, it requires judgment. It requires the ability to make judgments about your own choices and about your own experiences. Um, and I think that's like, that's the real 
it's a, a large, very large element anyway of this kind of um, countercultural moment on Twitter, you know, of people rediscovering this like capacity to make judgments about things and to notice things about the world and about relationships that are there is no acknowledgement of, you know, otherwise. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, notice yeah. intensifies. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I have to agree with you. I mean, that's kind of what uh, attracted me to, to Twitter Same. in the first instance and to, yeah, to this this corner of Twitter in particular. Um, I remember someone sent me, uh, I think it was uh, just offline, like a thread by, by Zero HP Lovecraft. And I was like, I really need to go on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> this is really interesting. So yeah, yeah the rest is history. Um, yeah, and I, I'm I'm really curious because I, to be honest, I see a lot of people who are you know master of the universe types orbiting this space, listening to these conversations, popping into the the clubhouse chat rooms, um, you know, subscribing to Substacks of the this dissident corner. Um, so so kind of the, the people who are in in the tech elite at least less so probably the media elite there is a, a bit mm. of overlap there as well um they're paying attention to this space you know they're paying attention to accounts with you know a couple of thousand followers um there, there is they're, they're they're listening they're lurkers uh i know i i see them sometimes you know they, they <laughs> pop up in, in, in weird ways and they're like whoa hey <laughs> what are you doing here so you know people know Important people, some important people know that there is there is truth truth work going on here. It it might be clad in, in the in the irreverent uh, style of memes and, and shit posting, um, but it's definitely a hot spot for for truths. And and there's a lot of people talking about you know um, the only way an elite is going to fizzle out is if there is a rise of a counter elite who has a different form of truth that they're going to use to be the cornerstone of their of their you know their new truth truth empire um you know <laughs> this this is me flattering myself <laughs> now and flattering flattering us us the people in this corner but um there's definitely interest in it um and you know ho- hopefully it's at least you know part of like a seed for um a new way of thinking because at least there's a lot of interest in this stuff as well i mean that's why i started this yeah. podcast as well you know people people want to talk about this stuff um, it's not mainstream, you know. I know I have a bit of um, an echo chamber effect here that I have to <laughs> have to rein in, but you know, there there is there is quite a lot of um, a lot of movement in this space, you know, and it's attractive. It's, it's got a magnetism. Yeah. I don't know what's what's your vibe about. Um, I mean, I I suppose you know, I, I'm also uh, kind of a latecomer to it, and I'm I'm sure there are people who feel like there was a kind of vibrancy to it that's been lost. And I know there are people who are kind of, um, you know, don't like each other anymore or, you know, and I'm, I'm sort of in the midst of, of that. Um, and just kind of trying to like more or less politely get along with everybody. Um, cause I'd still find that, you know, everybody has interesting things to say. Um, I guess, you know, I really, um, I kind of joined Twitter because there were people I wanted to sort of talk to and I wanted to participate in this little kind of nebulous thing that I saw going on. And there are lots of different kind of areas to it, you know, um, and it seems to have kind of uh, picked up a bit, you know, I mean, like the Red Scare Girls seem to 
have really made a sort of um, a kind of impact, I'd say, on um, on the culture, you know, to some extent. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to see things like that. Um, uh, you know, I, I probably wouldn't be online if it wasn't for people like them, you know. Um, and it's really like, um, it's really contributed a great deal to the development of my own thinking about things. And it's helped kind of provide a shape and structure to it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very exciting to think where it goes. It's very easy to get kind of pessimistic now, especially with the kind of like techno inevitability, <laughs> um, rhetoric that we were talking about earlier. Um, but it's also very clear that like, you know, people have these feelings and impulses, um, and they can be, they can only be su suppressed, uh, for so long before they start kind of resurfacing in other areas, you know? And I think Twitter is an area where they, they've been resurfacing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's a place where, you know, people just, just, you know, type in one, one little word that they're curious about. And then the, the whole accordion of, uh, of discourse yeah. pops out at them. And, um, it's, it's, it's great for discoverability, you know, if, whatever people are curious about there's just some there's some anonymous guy posting about it yeah <laughs> so it's it's i don't know it's i think it's to me it's definitely the the best medium i've been on um but yeah there's all, obviously also down, downsides to it it's really yeah i've, I've had, a, had a problem that. with that myself uh. <clears throat> yeah but it's also now i kind of have it where you know i kind of have my sub stack and i'm you know also promoting my podcast so i'm like yeah you know this is this is my side hustle this yeah. is the only thing <laughs> 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 we need to be here <laughs> this is what i'm supposed to do the market demands it <laughs> so um yeah, it's a it's it's a it's a bit of a weird space, but it's also kind of it's almost mandated by coronavirus. Yeah, you know, my my public square is closed, and I have to wear a mask in it. So um, this is my my kind of my opposite yeah. public square, and you know I'm I'm really enjoying it. I need some yeah, it's like a, a participatory decameron that we're all like contributing to in a small way. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really nice. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm going to have a look at my notes because I had like so many things I wanted to talk to you about. So I've been kind of doing um, a lot of run on run on sentences. Um So yeah, I hope I haven't been rambling too yeah, much. Yeah. No, no, you've been you've been great. No, I'm 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 just I just don't want to let people down cuz they've uh, they've asked me about it. Um yeah, there's just one thing here about kind of like family bonds and I know you you were posting something about, you know, people choosing their families and kind of yeah. these, um, yeah, these kind of, this, this is the future, you know, you don't need to put up with your, You're like your problematic old, granddad. Uh, <laughs> exactly. The Trump voting granddad, you can choose your family now. And, you know, you're, uh, I feel like you're a little bit skeptical yeah. about this possibility. Um, or... Yeah. I, I mean, you know, it's like, it's just saddening to see. I think it's like this, the, total effect of all of these like you know because the, you see stuff like that all the time um and with the capital um the capital capital riot there was this like thing of you know kids like ratting their parents out 
to the FBI, which is horrific. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and kind of incredible. Um, you know, I, I don't think families are, are perfect. You know, I just think it's just, it's part of life that you, you know, you're in this situation with people who are imperfect and you have to find ways to, um, to live with them and you have to, you have to respect them. Um, there's a kind of, there is something like precious about these things. And it's like, I, you know, the real reason why they're easy to sort of, um, devalue is, is because they don't provide instant, instant gratification. They require a lot of work and patience and tolerance, real tolerance of uh, other people's foibles, you know, and, you know, obviously people have like political disagreements with their families and, and things like that. But it, what, what's like saddening is just this complete like devaluing of the family as an institution altogether. Um, that it has no, again, it's that sort of scientific thing. There's no transcendent or metaphysical meaning to it, or there's no like, there's no cosmic enforcer to say you have to respect your granddad, even though he posts like pro Trump Facebook statuses. Um, and you know, there's like people take that absence as the limit of um, what could be. You know, there's no sense of like that bond being something that you contribute to. You know, and that you you like construct over time. I mean, when you accept this premise that like um, sort of so much of what appears to be reality is just socially constructed, and you can just remove it right? You're implicitly adopting this idea that like, um, the business of civilization is about removing obstacles, um, rather than building new things. You know, there's no like, sort of constructive dimension to that. So yeah, you know, like, (laughs) it's, it's really like, you know, granddad, maybe, um, tedious or irritating, um, but like you should, you still shouldn't like screen cap yourself owning him for clout. You know, it's like it's bad for your soul to do things like that. <laughs> you know, it really is. Like it's corrosive to you. Like it has a kind of lasting effect um, because then it's something that you've always, you've, you're always going to be someone who did that. You know. Yeah. Yeah, how how tied into um, kind of this rise of, of therapy culture, this rise of just like labeling psychic phenomena uh, or like psychological phenomena? Um, do you think it is? I don't think necessarily it's causal, but it seems to me like they're they're running parallel. Like I know so many people who have just diagnosed their parents with personality disorders, and um, you know everyone's in therapy, yeah. and you know when you go into therapy the therapist will probably you know if they have a at least one psychoanalytical bone in their body they're going to ask about your family and they're going to cover things that are terrible terrible trauma that has wrecked you since you were a child uh and that you know that you can now use to detach from your family because you know if, if it's if it's if it's this relationship that's not serving you that's not sparking joy you know why should yeah you engage yeah with it? well you know i think it sort of depends what like the object of the, the therapy is um, I, you know, there's this kind of like, like meme idea of therapy of like, oh, you know, men need to have therapy. Why won't they have therapy? Um, 
and it, it's kind of like you know i think that that's part of a wider thing really to do with like the way men are talked about at the moment as like people in need of this kind of behavioral intervention and management uh, especially with regard to things like emotions um where like men are always presumed to be like really deficient in being able to express themselves emotionally which i think is kind of you know, you can find men who have trouble expressing their feelings, um, but it, it's, I don't think it's anywhere near as sort of prevalent. I think it's kind of a myth that it's like the default mode of masculinity that um, people have. But I'm getting away from the therapy thing. Um, so, it, you know, it kind of gets touted as this like, almost like technocratic fix to problems with people's behavior. And there's this idea of like, you shouldn't go into a relationship unless you've like gone to see a therapist and sorted yourself out, you know? So you have to like prove yourself, prove your worth within this like meritocratic system of like doing work on yourself and, and all this kind of thing before you can, you know, dare to have like a kind of relationship with someone. And, you know, all these things, they seem really like, they seem like ploys to ironically, ploys to evade vulnerability, you know, um, because when you go into a relationship, you do make loads of mistakes, like everybody does, and you kind of, you know, um, fall on your face all the time, and, you know, you learn what it means to be in that place with another person, and that's a thing that you kind of build and construct together over time, and you make mistakes, um, I mean, I think that's one thing, like, the, you know, the culture seems to be very hostile to people making mistakes, you know, there doesn't seem to be much room for people to, like, to breathe and to actually be vulnerable, um, as much as it's, like, it's sort of promoted as the best way to be, I don't think people are really honest with themselves about the sort of, um, the actual risks and stakes of what it means to be vulnerable, you know. I, I sort of, you know, I, I sort of see that like everything that I write is like really um, in the service of like vulnerability. <laughs> you know, I think it's so important. Um, but it the way it's like promoted in the media is so glib and so kind of like callous um, to, you know, there, there are times when it's not appropriate to be vulnerable. Um, there are times where it's not appropriate yeah. to share your story, you know, and there are times when people are relying on you. Um, and if you like foreground your own experiences, then, um, <laughs> you know, you won't do a good job of like, um, of, uh, being able to look after them appropriately. You know? Yeah. It, it feels like everyone's encouraged to just, um, you know, take a take a megaphone and, um, you know, kind of exhibitionistically show off their their, you know, kind of their peel trauma. back the layers and show themselves that they're yeah. their trauma exactly. Um, but no one's listening because yeah. everyone's preoccupied with doing the same thing. Um, and I feel like you know it's 
vulnerability is is really important in yeah. context yeah. and it's in the context of trust so it's it's how you build trust with another person but if you're in a in the midst of a transactional yeah. relationship which we are not only encouraged but told that okay this is the relationship format that you can get now then um you know why should i yeah. stick around for you to be, well, be you know yeah your well it soul seems back. like there's a kind of insufficient reckoning with what it actually means to you know embrace hedonism right which is is necessarily so sort of selfish and is making your own pleasure the ultimate kind of um object of everything you do which just it just necessitates a kind of pragmatically callous attitude towards other people you know where you you shield yourself from getting too invested in them and i, I you know i just think you you can't have it all you can't have um you can't have like total openness without also having um, true vulnerability and you can't have um, true vulnerability whilst also engaging in these like, you know, transactional (laughs) um, kind of cold relationships with people, you know, that I've just been reduced to their sort of bare bones of people providing services. And, and I think people even treat like relationships and dating like that. Um, and it, you know it's terrible. It's like it's just, it causes so much suffering to people. I think, and I, I don't think they. A lot of people feel like they don't have any other option, and they're like in this rat race of uh, you know have to like date as many people as possible. I have to like have sex as much as possible before I'm dead. You know, it's it, all this stuff. It just it stacks on top of itself. You know, it's it, we live in like a crazy making culture. You know, everybody has to live with these, like, psychological contradictions that are foisted upon them by the sort of predominant cultural narratives. Um, that, you know, you need to be vulnerable. You need to be open. You need to be, but, you know, also be completely for yourself and, like, don't care about other people, <laughs> you know, and try and, like, acquire as much just pure pleasure as possible. Um, and... It just, yeah, it just, yeah. just doesn't work. And try to to not interfere with uh, not not interfere with yeah. anyone else's yeah. you know, life. Don't don't get involved. Don't offend. Don't say something you shouldn't say. Um, which I also think you know, <laughs> I keep bringing up this this you know anecdote that you know growing up here in, in at the intersection of countries and like you know at the edge of an empire, uh, there's a lot of like you know ethnic small mm. little ethnic tensions with. with people around me um and you know the, the the icebreaker joke with someone new in the group was usually to make a joke about their ethnicity um, yeah that was the thing and if you could feel a bit comfortable about that and say oh you know you're hungarian you, you know i don't know <laughs> i can't even remember exactly why why we used to make fun of hungarians but there was there was kind of a, a suite of things you could say in that situation um and he would just, you know, he would laugh and I would be like, ha ha, okay, we're cool. And then they would say something about me being, <laughs> everything would be fine. <laughs> you know, everyone would be fine. But, you know, that you need to kind of do these, you know, you kind of have to have, to have these like vulnerability concessions from someone to, to kind of inch, inch towards each other to build that trust. Um, and, and I remember when I when one of my jobs in London, which was actually a really good job, great team, <laughs> don't, want to, don't want to say anything, but it was one of these companies who was really, 
you know, had made a really big effort to, uh, to, to have you bring your whole self to, oh, work, yeah, yeah. to you know, make you sh- show up with vulnerability. And to be honest, it, it kind of pushed everyone into this weird false consciousness yeah. situation where no one trusted each other. It was quite this, like, you know, almost like eunuchs at the at the court in, in, the, <laughs> in the 1400s. You know, every, everyone yeah. was scheming. Everyone, you know, everyone had to pretend to trust each other. And it was really, really strange, really yeah. weird. Like, I, I, I left at one point because of that. And, you know, just, just you can't engender trust by decree. Yeah, you can't say, yeah. oh, we are a trusted but, I mean, company. When you've decided that, works. like, all of the kind of, uh, you know, accepted, like, uh, routines for doing this are actually like attempts to just control people and be mean. <laughs> like all, all the like the kind of ways in which you build trust in a relationship by you know, committing yourself to a person, for example, is like you know seen as kind of antiquated or unnecessary. Um, then you know what are you left with? I mean, I think that's like the maybe the crux of the denial is that you can have you can have like vulnerability without trust. You know without like feeling I, I don't think people realize what a kind of precious and rare thing that is to be able to be with somebody and just actually be completely secure in um in knowing them whilst also you know um recognizing their ability to change and develop and grow you know um and not feeling threatened by that it's not something that can come from nowhere, you know, and a lot of these, like, you know, things like marriage, they're just now seen as like purely like economic transactions again, which obviously they've always had that dimension to them. But, um, you know, I, I mean, I think I suppose monogamy in general is really what I'm talking about. Um, they're just like, there's no scientific reason for them <laughs> you know I mean, i'm sure you could make some like evo psych argument for why actually you know there is a scientific reason but that's kind of irrelevant it's like that's completely not the point there's a sort of like a positive element to the the social construction of things i mean t- in my view things are socially constructed because they kind of need to be i mean that's my own like metaphysical personification of what's going on and then they revise themselves over time, you know, and it's this successive development of self-consciousness. Um, and we've been through the phase of like abolishing everything. And I think that, you know, it's the, I mean, not to flatter myself, but I feel like the next, you know, the people in the know recognize that this has been exhausted and we now have to sort of rebuild. Um, yeah, like oh, sorry, I lost my lost my train of thought. Um, no worries. That's that actually leads me leads me well to to my next question, which is essentially a, a request request from our mutuals <laughs> that um, if if you have any kind of recommendations, you have kind of a something something to to give our listeners um, to to kind of nudge them in the right direction. Is there kind of like a a mantra or a a thing because you know um the, the person who asked us said that you were a very good diagnostician um but could you could you give some prescriptions oh uh, yeah i mean there are kind of lots of areas i think um 
I don't know if I have a kind of um, a sort of snappy sound sound bite uh, that I can give. Not that she was asking for that, um, but uh, yeah, I think you know it's really important to um, to know how to be in conflict with people authentically um, and how to still respect them and still uh, still love them, even if it's like a family member or a person you're in a relationship with. Um, I think there's like, there's a tremendous fear of conflict and it's kind of taboo. Um, and it's, you know, it's difficult. Like it's something, if it doesn't come naturally to you, which I think, I don't think it does to a lot of people who've been, especially men who've been raised to be very kind of agreeable. Um, then that's a very important thing. Um, I mean, you know, the whole like, uh, like, like go and exercise and stuff. <laughs> I think other people have said this on your podcast before. That's definitely not bad at all. Um, and reading is very good as well. Like just read, especially difficult texts, like reading old literature from the you know Renaissance or like the Homeric epics, things like that. Um, that is, can be life-changing. You know, reading the romantic poets can be life-changing. Um, that's not, you know, maybe when we were talking about therapy, this is something I should have said, like you can just kind of read poetry <laughs> and it, it sounds kind of a bit like um, ridiculous, but you know, you'll find, you'll find things that resonate with you. And, you know, I think reading a lot of like a very good literature and it, you know, it's like the highest kind of uh, level of like cognitive um cognitive function you know and the more you engage with it the more it like shapes your own ability and expands um it expands what you can conceive of and your sentences will gain more like elasticity you know and they'll have more like room to fully systematize things and lay them out um you know and you'll like you'll develop the ability to see nuances in things you know, like aesthetic nuances and spiritual nuances. Um, that sounds a bit vague, but, you, you know, really you just have to do it and and sort of discover what I'm talking about. Not that I'm an expert at it or anything, but, you know, just if you can just yeah. gain more and more, like, verbal and mental flexibility, that can have a tremendously beneficial effect on you because it enables you to get out of, like, um, you know, negative thought patterns and like bad sort of loops. Um, and then also you encounter the aesthetic sublime, which is absolutely real. And, you know, don't let anybody tell you that it isn't. Um, and that can't really, you know, can only really be approximated in words. Um, ironically, although it's often found in them, um, it's, it's just something that you have to encounter and, you know, it, it, it's good for your soul. Mm, yeah, that that sounds. To be honest, I mean, the, now that that you you say it, it sounds like um, you know something you've engaged with a, a lot because that's that that's kind of the feeling that the way you write about things, you know, that the kind of um, the the multifacetedness of of how you look at things. I feel like it, it probably ties into, into your passion for, you know, poetry or you know, kind of older texts. Um, 
And I feel like it, it expands um, your possibility to opt out as well, because a, a lot of what's what's going on right now is essentially the, the mental enslavement of, by narrative. Yeah. Um, and if you have the, the the narrative tools yourself, and you kind of see the underbelly of what's you know what's what's being presented to you, you see yeah, it for yeah. how well. I mean, that's one thing. I mean, you know, uh, amidst the sort of like just the <laughs> the horrible shit that's all around us all the time, you know, like <laughs> and uh, this sort of like. Um, you know, ecology of narratives, they're always competing for our attention and trying to sort of win our assent to things um, in, like, slightly covert ways. Very covert ways, actually. Um, you know, you can't necessarily... It's not easy for everybody to, like, exit society altogether and go off and, you know, start a homestead somewhere, as wonderful as that would be. But you can kind of... Um, you can avoid being like captured by these narratives and you can avoid letting them um, sort of define the terms in which you conceive of yourself, which I think happens to a lot of people. I mean, that's what's happened to incels, you know, incels, there's a, a sense in which incels to just like loop back to the first thing we were talking about were, you know, manufactured by society for a purpose, which was to sort of, create a visible scapegoat for its failures to provide opportunities for satisfying relationships for young men. You know, there are all sorts of like, um, you know, social um, and sort of systematic factors that are responsible for that like phenomena. But as long as you have this like folk devil that you can project all of that onto and then sort of symbolically exclude from the acceptable bounds of society, that's, um, that's a kind of a form of human sacrifice, you know? And I think what happens a lot is like people are entangled within these like narratives and the narratives have been produced to do that. Um, and you end up being instrumentalized in the service of an agenda that's not even, you know, clear to you, you know? You're, you're just an incidental part of its functioning. Um, and it's, it's degrading, you know. And I think that people acutely feel degraded, even though they can't identify why, you know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that, that, that definitely hits a nerve. There's kind of this, this weird, it's kind of nebulous quality to this, this anxiety that everyone's living mm. with. Um, you don't really understand what it is that has has a hold of you, but it's it's there and it, it it never leaves. And I feel like that's also part of what's funneling people into therapy as yeah. well, because it's you know these these people, most of them have anxiety disorders or depression or things like that, which is exactly what you'd expect uh, with narrative overload yeah. and yeah, just kind of frying your circuit circuits every day just by and just a, by a lot of like mental health awareness stuff as well is a kind of way of like naturalizing those feelings and and sort of um framing them as if they're just a natural part of somebody's identity you know so if someone has like little identifiers on yeah. their like um you know twitter profile like dash depressed dash or whatever it's like and they'll do posts where they're like oh i'm so depressed and 
you, you know, that can be a way of like, um, really like obfuscating the fact there are things you're doing that may be contributing to that, you know, um, or, or that there yeah. are problems yeah, with the entire is... society and culture in which you live that contribute to that. I should say, I mean, it's not entirely your own responsibility, you know, I don't want to make it sound like that. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I feel like it's the same case as, you know, as fat acceptance. It's the same case as, you know, normalizing sex work. You know, these are these are symptomatic things that you know, happen because of other emergent phenomena that coincidentally a lot of companies that fund these rights movements yeah. tend to profit from, you know, yeah. almost miraculously. Um, and, you know, the, every every year with every new dysfunction, we get a new rights movement. You know, people yeah. maimed by by industrial equipment will be well, the next Well, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a narrative that I think people, people are addicted to. Well, there, there needs to be some obstruction to a social energy that needs to be removed. And the social energy is personified as a group. And when we run out of, you know, of groups uh we have to like manufacture more and I, I think this is really what like identity politics is about i mean I, or on, on one level it is is that's the the means by which it works kind of is this like endless manufacture of new um oh, new consumer identities basically i've said that before like a lot um that you know um and as they move further away, they get more abstract. They get further away from things like race. You know, um, they kind of um, exist more as like constellations of like, you know, clothing items and like objects that this that kind of imbue the wearer of them with this like identity. Um, you know, I I think that's like. Mm-hmm that's a very concerning thing as well because um you know obviously everybody is enmeshed within these sort of systems that classify them as different things and that determines the way in which um they're treated a lot of the time um but that kind of nuanced understanding of identity has really been lost under this like this idea that everybody has a kind of um you know, a tiny little person inside their forehead, <laughs> you know, and um, what needs to happen is like that tiny little person needs to be brought into like, you know, you need to act more and more like him, <laughs> basically, you know, you need to like express him as much as possible. And that is like a total phantom that's been created out of, you know, out of nothing by like, by culture, you know, um, yeah, exactly. And and if there is no, you know, we we've kind of uh, gotten rid of the of the rigid chains and and shackles of our of our tradition and all the things that we kind of yeah. generated through the the millennia to get to, um, you know, that doesn't mean like the that the that the tiny person's going to be just free and there's going to be like you know writing poetry and and frolicking in the street. Um, it means that they're confused, that they're alienated, and that they're they're grasping. Yeah. Continuously. Well, grasping. it also shows how like um, removed everybody is from any kind of positive use, um, you know, uh, that they can they can like contribute towards something bigger than themselves, whether it's like relationships, 
you know, with, with like a, a partner or, you know, a wife or a husband or like a family or, um, or just something even bigger than that, you know, or art even like great art. Um, people are like sort of totally estranged from that. And so the relationship they have with themselves and their, their actual expression of themselves is kind of like a person, um, you know, selecting custom skins in like a, in like Call of Duty or something, you know, it's just like yeah. this um, endless like self customization. Exactly, and the idea that you know everyone's a work in progress, which is kind of this uh, this concept from you know self help therapy, whatever boomer culture that you you're just you know you're just one small improvement away well, you're one skin away from achieving the authentic you um and you just have to go to one more retreat go to, to one more therapy session um and you're on your way to, to to getting there but that's you know it's just chasing the horizon you're there there is no there is no destination yeah on this yeah journey. i mean you know the um, same thing is discovered by people who t- who like try and adhere to the sort of red pill thing too uh, rigidly you know it's because they just internalize this like set of game rules and then try and follow them perfectly and you know the life itself will always like exceed any any kind of like um system of rules designed to organize it you know um i mean that's that's how we got into this mess so <laughs> um you know, you have to like, uh, I mean, that's the other good thing about reading is like you read so many different things, especially things that will disagree with each other. And eventually you can develop this kind of little mini council chamber in your head, you know, and have different sort of like, um, sort of like the, the ghosts of history give their verdict on uh, everything that's happening to you. And like, they can have disagreements with each other, you know. Yeah. I mean this in a metaphorical way. And I'm not. It's, I'm not actually insane. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, um, I, I didn't think so. But it's it's, it's an interesting thing because once once you immerse yourself in in you know the, the teachings of others and the voices of others, especially like we said, if they're they're quite varied and kind of like an eclectic mix, it's not even that you're you're kind of having this this council. They're not talking to each other. You kind of internalize that lens. And then you can use it, and then you yeah. can overlap it with the with a different yeah, yeah. lens, and kind of create. You, you're cultivating instinct, not even that. It's kind of like cultivating yes. taste. You know, yeah. you kind of have a taste yeah. for truth at one point. It's like your 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 directions better. You improve your direction yeah. with with every. Well, it's every it's a building of the self, and that you know that is something I do believe in. For for all that, like I critique individualism. Um, you know, I do believe in this sort of like. The, the sort of slow um, construction of yourself over the course of your life through your actions um, and also just through like your kind of developing self-awareness that you nurture through um, through good deeds and and through like um, you know challenging reading and through making a life you know and through the relationships you have with people yeah. Yeah, that's that's a a, a lovely um, yeah a, a lovely focus point essentially. You know, if, uh, if if I could make a recommendation, that's probably sound pretty similar to that. Um, before I, I let you go, there is one show question 
Okay. I forgot to warn you about, but it's, it's essentially, um, it's, it's not a complicated one. It's essentially about, um, do you know a subversive thinker or book or you know, piece of culture? And it sounds like you do <laughs> that people should, uh, should maybe read more of. Or oh, that's a good question. Or, yeah. um, well, I mean, I don't know. People who kind of know me quite well won't be surprised by um, this answer. Um, but I mean, a person who's had like a tremendous influence on my own thinking about um, in a number of areas is um, the singer David Thomas of the American rock band Pear Ubu, um, who are, you know, I, in my opinion, really form the kind of um, the unacknowledged center of the American rock music canon. I know a lot of people disagree with me about that. Um, I would just say, like, uh, you know, he is somebody whose work is, um, and his band's work is endlessly rewarding um, and, you know, endlessly um, and truly nourishing to the soul. <laughs> um, and he also has a number of um, kind of writings um, that people can check out. There's a book of kind of adapted lyrics called the Book of Hieroglyphs, which also has some essays in the back that are very good. Um, and he has a few other books as well that are kind of ostensibly about the making of albums but actually also contain a lot of kind of cultural commentary. Um, he, he, um, he coined, he, well, he may not have coined it, but he's certainly popularized its usage. And I kind of borrow it from him, this term media priest. And he has a kind of, um, uh, he's a great like music critic and theorist of rock music. And there's a sort of wider um, dimension to his thinking that develops on that into this kind of critique of like the entire sort of media complex of like journalism, you know, and news. Um, and he is absolutely prophetic in that way. You know, I mean, he, he, he coined this term data panic. There was a Peribu album called, or an EP called data panic in the year zero back in the seventies. You know, and the entire concept of data panic is like people becoming kind of addicted to this endless information wash that keeps them uh, focused on superficial things. And, it, you know, that's that's a real sort of like visionary, uh, yeah. visionary quality that he has to be able to foresee something like that. You know, So, yeah, check out Per Rubu and uh, David Thomas's writings. Yeah, that's that's definitely new to me, and so I definitely will. Um, it's it's been it's been a blast. I, I thank you so much thank for you. for coming on. Uh, yeah, I had loads of fun. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's um, you know, it it really travels well. You know, you know, in in terms of um, of how you write and how you speak, and I also you know, I, I always like to to discover that someone's from from England because I really do miss England. Yeah, a there are a few of us. Yeah, I, I, I've yeah. heard, so I've heard. But, you know, when, whenever you kind of have a, you know, an, an anonymous account on Twitter, you, you're always a bit curious to see where, where someone's from. But, you know, I do still still have a soft spot for the English. So, so thank you for coming on. Obviously, not just because you're English, but because because it's, it's been a pleasant surprise. Oh, thank well. you. Yeah, thanks. For if you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, 
and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you 